Hey, if you are a football fan, and how about those Baylor Bears? Was that not a crazy, crazy game or what? That was pretty wild. I, I even hear an Aggie fan rooting for the Bears. That's a good thing. All right. Uh, well, this is an awesome time of year if you're a football fan, is it not? I mean, what can you ask? I mean, there's a game about every day. All right. There's the bowl games were on yesterday. Today you got the NFL games. You know, it's it's pretty sweet unless you hate football, right? I see some of you ladies rolling your eyes. But I think it's a good time of the year. Now, as I was thinking about football, um, I ran across this, this story. Uh, it was on the 2010 website of the Chicago Bears. And uh, in that year, the football team presented a, a series of videos of uh, that followed the team's rookies, those guys who had just started in the NFL, and it was following them on video. It started from their arrival in training camp all the way through the preseason. And one of the videos that was on the website was of uh, a video that showed Coach Lovey Smith kind of in this orientation talk with, with the rookies. And, of course, the biggest thing in the rookie's mind is whether he will make it on the team or not, because when you start in the preseason, uh, all the, the rookies know that there's at least 80 men who are on the roster. But after a few weeks, the roster's cut down to 65 players. And then before, right before the season starts, uh, the, the roster is trimmed down to even further to 53 players. That's what you have to do in the NFL. And so every rookie uh, is thinking that he, he, I've got to make this team. And in 2010, of the 19 rookies who were invited to that uh, camp, there's only about seven that were going to make it. So, in an attempt to uh, encourage his rookies, Lovey Smith, uh, knowing that, he addressed his rookies. And he challenged them with this challenge. He said, make us put you on the team. Make us put you on the team, he said. In other words... Play so well in practice that the, the coaches couldn't imagine cutting you. Make us put you on the team, he reemphasized. Take the decision out of the coaches' hands and let your performance make the decision for us. Make us put you on the team. Let your performance make the decision for us. And I share that with you because as I, as I read that and as I thought about that, that's, well, that's exactly what the religions of this world say. That's what they're thinking. I've got to live in such a way that I'll have to make God put me on his team. I've traveled around the world. I've seen it. I was just... In an in, in a area of, of where Hindus were predominant, even in a city where Muslims were predominant, and they live in such a way that they want to make God put them on the team. They're trying to earn their, their way to be put on the team. I lived in uh, America, obviously, all my life, and as I've, as I've lived in different places, one of the common threads that, that I see, even amongst those who would proclaim to be Christians, is that they live in such a way that they are believing as if God is saying, make me put you on my team. But in reality, what the Bible says and what God thinks is absolutely counterintuitive to that truth completely different reality is people who think they can perform so well that that they can make God put them on their team will be rejected in essence what the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is is reality is you can't make me put you on your team because you can never be good enough to be on my team Instead, he says this, though, I've got some good news for you. You know how you can get on my team? Nothing you do. But I got a son, 
His name is Jesus Christ. And he's got all the skills. He's got all the abilities. He's got all the resources that you never have nor could ever have to be on my team. But I tell you what. We'll exchange. If you just exchange places with him. I'll put you on my team. If you quit trusting in your abilities and your 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 talents and you place your trust in your 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 in your faith and his talents and his abilities, I'll put you on the team, not based on your credentials. But on his credentials. Tell you get on my team. There's many people out there. Believe they have to live in such a way. To make God put them on the team. But you know, there's something else that's sad, too. Is that when people are on the team through faith, they feel like to excel on the team, that it's also dependent upon them. That's also about staying in good standing on the team is always about my performance. And you know what Christ says? He says, no, not only do I want to put you on the team based on the work of my son or my works, but I also want to enable you to excel on the team. Not through dependence upon yourself, but through dependence upon me and my abilities to work through you. In our passage this morning, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 25. And I believe one of the things that we come away with here, what we'll learn is that if by faith we'll choose to exchange our life, our own self-righteousness. And exchange that for the life of Christ and faith in Christ's life and Christ's perfect righteousness. We will be declared righteous. And he will empower us to live the Christian life. I believe what we'll learn here today is that we are justified through faith in order to live out the Christian life by faith as well. Look with me in here to Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Now, just in case you're not acquainted with the book of Galatians, Galatians was written to a people uh, that Paul had ministered to on his first missionary journey. The area of Galatia that uh, Paul administered to is kind of in that, if you go and you think of Turkey, it's kind of in that central south Turkey area there. And Paul is, uh, had established these churches in this region, but he had gotten word that a group of people known as the Judaizers had made their way into the church. And the Judaizers, the reason why they're called Judaizers is because they accepted, they said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, He's, he was sent from God. And that's good, and we believe in that, but to be a Christian, really, I mean, you also need to keep the laws. In essence, to really become a Christian, you also need to become a Jew, is what needs to happen. And that's totally counter to the gospel that that Paul had taught, and that had been imparted to him by Christ Jesus. And so... The, the Judaizers were attacking Paul and his gospel that he had preached. They were attacking Paul and his apostleship. They're saying his gospel wasn't true. And they say, no, he really wasn't an apostle. So Peter or, or Paul writes this letter to defend the gospel of grace. That is, it's the good news that we're saved, not through anything that we do, but completely the unmerited favor of God that we receive simply through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he also goes on to defend his apostleship. He says, and he defends how he was accepted, that the other apostles in Jerusalem even recognized his apostleship. And now here in our passage this morning, he begins to defend or he, he shows his apostleship by his confidence to go and to rebuke another apostle. And by the way, not just any apostle, but the chief apostle, particularly the chief apostle among the Jews. Look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says, but when Cephas, which is really the Aramaic equivalent to Peter or Petros, 
means uh, means rock. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. How do you like that? Would you like to be there for that one? You, uh, you all know you would have liked to been there. You, you all have been rubbernecking like, what's going on? He's posing them face to face. There's going to be a theological showdown that's about to happen. Let's watch. It was serious. He said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, those are fighting words, aren't they? He says, Peter stood guilty. Of what? Well, look at verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, and we believe this James to be the half-brother of Jesus, and we think that these men weren't necessarily sent from James, but they are perhaps from James' church, or James had oversight of them in, in Jerusalem. But he says this, for prior for coming to for, of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of circumcision. And what he means by the party of circumcision, that evidently these men who were coming from perhaps the church of James, they were the party that said, well, Yes, we believe in the Messiah, but you also need to keep the law. You also need circumcision to be acceptable to God. You also need to keep the dietary laws and those kind of things. And so what happens to Peter, as he's sitting up there in Antioch, a Gentile area, and ministering to the Gentiles... Having sitting down and having fellowship, eating food, which, by the way, God had given him a vision in Acts chapter 10 that said he could eat. And so the brother Peter was probably just sitting there and he was pulling out some lobster and just dipping it in garlic butter. And it was just probably just slathering down his lips and stuff. And then out of the right sand of his eye, he goes and he looks and all of a sudden he reckoned, oh, those are some of the brothers from Jerusalem. From James Church. And I'm eating crawfish. And they're going to think, he's not too righteous. He's not keeping up with the, with the laws. So you can just imagine him taking his napkin and taking that lobster and just kind of putting it into his, his uh, napkin and putting it on his plate. And over time, as the, as the, the verb tense note, notes here, he kind of slowly began to withdraw. The, man, the sense that I have is that he slowly said, you know what, he started turning down offers to go eat with the Gentiles. He started hanging out more with the, the Jewish brothers instead of the Gentile brothers. And so if you were a Gentile in Antioch, how would you begin to feel? What, what, what's wrong with me? Did, did, I not, I mean, did I not do something right? These Jewish brethren came. Is there, is there, is there something else I got to do to be acceptable to you, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ? What's wrong with us? He goes on and says, the rest of the Jews joined him in the hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by this, their hypocrisy. That's, that's how serious Barnabas was. was Paul's, uh, Barnabas was actually from uh, an island where, uh, of Gentiles, and Barnabas was on the road with Paul to, on the first missionary journey to actually reach out to these Galatians that Paul is writing to right now. And here Barnabas, because of the fear of the circumcision, he also begins to withdraw. Everybody's withdrawn from Can you imagine? What those Gentiles felt like second class citizens, perhaps were not truly saved. Maybe through their minds, they started, maybe we're, 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 we're not really saved. Maybe there's some work that we haven't done. Maybe we really do need to keep these, these laws. Maybe we really do need to become Jewish. And Paul gets wind of this. And that's why he opposes him to his face. That's why he gets up in his grill and says, uh-uh. This isn't the gospel. Remember what he says there in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, that is when they were not walking or behaving correctly about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, 
You know, well, isn't he supposed to take him aside and talk to him first in person? I think this is one of these cases where it's too late for that. By Peter's actions, he had made a public statement. And it needed to be corrected publicly. And so, he says this, if you... He's calling he's calling Peter out. If you, Peter, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In essence, he's saying, Peter, what's the deal? What's the deal with you? Just just a few weeks back, you're, you're eating with the Gentiles. Now you're not. What's with the inconsistency? And I just imagine Peter in public He's probably just like this because he has no defense. He's speechless. Now, we don't have recorded what actually happened to Peter or how he responded. But I think the brother was caught. And I think when we can look at his other writings, I think even because I believe this happened before the council in Jerusalem, I think we see the difference in Acts 15. Peter defends the Gentiles, that they don't have to add dietary laws or uh, the law. He reinforces that it's through grace by faith alone. But the problem is here, Peter denied the gospel. He, he compromised the gospel. Not so much by his words, but by his actions. There's, there's a principle there for us. See, Peter, and by his actions, though he didn't say it, but by his actions, he denied what he spoke with his mouth. He was living in hypocrisy. There's a couple principles. One is our doctrine should not be just said with our lips, but it's also seen in our actions. That is what we believe about God's word isn't something that should just come from our mouths, but it's something that should exude throughout our life and our actions. And Peter didn't do that. And it was coming at a heavy cost. By just withdrawing from the Gentiles, he was sending a message that you really don't know the gospel. And he was compromising. He was watering down the gospel, allowing something else to be added to it. There's a second principle I think we should take from this. Are there places for compromise and getting along with people? Well, there are times when you can do that. There is never a place for compromise on the clear teachings of God's word, particularly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never is there room for compromise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never is there room to say, yes, it's Jesus Christ plus something else. Never. Those are fighting words. Those are things that we must defend and stand up for. Yes, we do it with grace and we do it with love, as I think Paul did here to Peter. But we stand on those things. Now, I believe in verse 15, Paul continues. He continues with his confrontation of of. Peter, but I think they give it to us in summary form. I don't think this is everything that that uh, Paul had said to Peter, but I think it's the essence of it. And he notice he starts out with a little bit of irony because look in verse 15. He says, we are by Jews. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, what's he saying here? Well, the phrase literally in the, in, in the in the Greek, it says Gentile sinners. We are not Gentile sinners. We are Jews by nature. You're not those Gentile sinners. Essence, it was amongst the Jews, particularly those who were unconverted. uh, They always thought of themselves because they had received the law, because they were Jewish uh, by their ethnicity, that uh, they had a different standing with, with God. And that those who were not Jews, that they were those Gentile sinners. And they always kind of referred that to it, and they kind of said it in a pious way. And I think Paul, when he starts off, he wants to put a little conviction into Peter. And so, and so he reasons, we are, uh, 
by Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. I think he was saying it with irony. He was saying it to, to kind of push Peter and help Peter realize, hey, here's what you're doing. You're not saying it in your mouth like we used to say, you Gentile sinners, but you're saying it by your actions, Peter. By you standing aloof of them and no longer having close fellowship with these Gentile brethren, what you're saying to them is that you're just not good enough. You're those Gentile sinners. That's the message that you're sending. But Peter goes on and he, he wants to say, he says, we are by Jews, by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, Peter. And here's where he gets them. He says, yeah, we used to believe that we are Jews by nature, which we are and not those Gentile sinners. But nevertheless, Peter, listen to this. And what he's saying is, and you know this, too. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law. But through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, he says, even we, Peter, he's talking about himself and Peter, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. So then, why did we believe in Christ Jesus, Peter? So that we be, may be justified by faith in Christ and Peter, not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh. No Jewish flesh, no Gentile flesh, no one will be justified. You know that, Peter. And you know, as Peter heard these words, I'm certain that the conviction was running deep in his heart. The essence of what he's saying is that he says, Peter, you and I both know that the Mosaic law never saved us. It never made us more acceptable in the eyes of God. It wasn't enough. The reality is, in our world today, this idea that some kinds of work, whether it be the works of law of the Jews or works of self-made man laws, there's, it's pervasive throughout our society that to have favor with God, to have right standing with God, we must do some kinds of works. I have uh, these ladies that like to visit uh, my home every so often. Every It seems like every three or four months or so. And you probably just get these. They may not be the same ladies or same men, but you probably get these knocks on the door every so often. All right. I got one of those knocks yesterday and I saw who it was and I looked out and I was like, oh, I don't want to talk to him today. I was actually I'm preparing for this sermon. And I'm like, so I actually went back in my room. OK, and when I stood in my room and then they rang the doorbell again. It was as if God was saying, go talk to them. I said, OK, so I went and lo and behold, there it is. It's my Jehovah's Witnesses friends. And they always start off with some random verse or something. And today, this day, they asked me something about heaven and, and asked me, well, what do you think heaven's going to be? And they showed me a picture. And I said, yeah, I, I you know, I mean, we kind of went round about. And that's usually what we do. We kind of go around in circles. And uh, but I always try to one of my goals typically is to try to take them back to salvation. So get, instead of getting run off on all these other little tangents and things like that, um, I go back there. And as we were talking, I basically said to them, I said, so do you believe that the work of Christ is sufficient for your salvation? And I remember the lady on my left goes, well, it gets you in the door. So I said, you're, you're, you're saying it's not enough then. And then they, they always, when I when they get them there, they always, they always kind of, they say, no, it is by faith alone, but... You just you're saying it gets you in the door, so it doesn't get you all the way through. They don't like to respond to that. All right. They showed me something from some reasoning with scripture things, then. And their answers are contradictory. Reality is, it's not just with the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's with all religions. All right, one of the common questions I like to ask people. When I work with them, it's a question you all have I've certainly heard before. But it's kind of a diagnostic question. 
I ask this question, if you were to die today and Christ should ask you why I should let you into heaven, what would be your response? I ask this a lot of people. People who would say, I'm a Christian. Because sometimes you ask me before, you know, are you a Christian? Or you talk to them a while and they'll, they'll, they'll say things. And so I ask them this question. And I just I just really want to get a feel for where they're at. And you know what the common questions are? Here in the Bible Belt, you know what the common answer is? Let me just give you some of them. One is, well, I've, I've always been a Christian. I was born into a Christian family. I'm a Christian. Does that sound familiar? We were by nature, by Jews. But a lot of people will say they're a Christian because they're born in a Christian family. Some of the other answers I get is, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. Well, for all have sinned to fall short of the glory of God. Or other answers may begin with statements like this. Well, I never did this. Well, we're not justified by works, but through faith. Or they may say, I have always tried to do this. Well, we're not justified by works, but by faith. Or I do my best. Well, we're not justified by works, but through faith in Christ. The reality is they, they, they can't get past this idea that it's something that they can do. It's something that they have to merit. And the reality is Christ says it's, it, it's not enough. God says it's not enough. You've got to exchange your own self-righteous attempts to earn favor with me for the life of Christ and faith in Christ to have favor with me. Your works merit nothing. Justification comes through faith in Christ and Christ alone. So that, that begs the question, what is justification? Matt, that sounds like a big word that's in theological books. Well, it's in theological books, but it's also right here in the Bible. Justification literally means to declare righteous. Declare one righteous. I think I've given you a further definition of justification in there. It's a long one, but I think it's important. So just bear with me. Look at, look at it written down there or up here. Here's how we define the work of justification. Not only does it mean to declare righteous, but it's that instantaneous legal act of God, whereby the believing sinner is credited with the righteousness of Christ, who paid our sin debt, and thereby declared righteous in the eyes of God, Via their position in Christ. Let me break that down for you. First, justification is an instantaneous act and not a process. That is, to be declared righteous is not something we just kind of slowly walk into. But it's an act of God where he says, you are righteous. I declare you righteous. I don't make you righteous. I declare you righteous. It's not a process. Again, it's a, it's a legal act of God. It's not the result of, of our character. It's not a result of any of our works. It's just a legal act that God does on our behalf. Justification is also, it's God declares the believing sinner righteous. He doesn't make them righteous. That's important. He declares us righteous. He doesn't make us righteous. Now, we are made righteous after we come to faith. God does this work in us where he's making us righteous more and more through this work of his Holy Spirit. We call that sanctification. But justification is a legal term where he declares it. And the reason that he can declare us righteous is because what we are credited with is not our own righteousness, but it's Christ's righteousness. Now, let me see if I can make this a little simpler and break it down for you. When I was in college, I like to use this illustration, but when I was in college, um, I had no money, okay? I, I, I was poor, okay? But when I went away, my dad, he gave me a credit card, okay? And on the credit card, and some of y'all are saying, yeah, I got one of those, all right? No, you don't. You didn't get one, so I did. Too bad. And, uh, and on the credit card, it said Matthew A. Reynolds. That, that was my name. That is my name. And uh, 
just in case you didn't know, I have an A as my middle name. But that wasn't a name on it. But the reality is, I had no money to pay it. So I ran a bill up on there. I'm like, how am I going to pay that? I couldn't pay it. I had no job. I was going to school. Didn't have a job at that time. But the good thing was, when the, the creditors came and they looked at my credit, they said, wow, it looks good. It's all clear. You're righteous. You got righteous standing with us. Well, how is that possible? Because what they what happened is, see, the bill didn't come to me. The bill didn't go to Matthew A. Reynolds. It went to Gerald A. Reynolds. It showed up at 2162 Cathedral Avenue, Norwood, Ohio, 45212. It went there. And guess what? He had the resources to take care of the bill. He could pay that bill. He paid it for me. I couldn't. Remember, if you looked at me, you're poor. You can do nothing for yourself. You can't get good standing with the credit creditors. But guess what? Dad, Dad gave me his credit. Dad established credit for me. So when the creditors looked at me, they saw Matthew A. Reynolds, but they saw the credit. They saw the righteousness of Gerald A. Reynolds. So, too, with us, the reason that we can be justified and declared righteous is because through faith in Christ Jesus, we are we are we are put in identity with him. He gives us a new identity and he takes our our sinful sinfulness that we deserve to pay for. And he pays it for us. And in exchange, he gives us his righteous standing. That's what happens. That's what Paul is trying to tell Peter here. There's nothing you can you can add to it. It's all about the credits and the righteousness of Christ. That's what makes you acceptable, not the works of the law. Amen. That's something to get happy about, isn't it? Aren't you glad that you're not held accountable for your credit? But it's Christ that's been placed on you. Well, how do we receive this? It's 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 just important. There's a lot of people that have heard this message. Even if I've asked people in this, this world, as I've asked people in this community, you know, if you were to die today and Christ would say, why should I let you into heaven? And they would give me those answers and responsive works. Then I would explain the gospel to them. And they would, they would say, yeah, I know about that. I, I, I believe that. You do? Well, why didn't you tell me that in the first? Why didn't you say that? And what I come to find out is they really don't believe it. They really haven't come to understood it, understand it. See, faith in Christ Jesus is not faith in some plan. It's not a. It's not faith in you know what. Yeah, I, I read that in a track. I believe that. Or it's not. I, I prayed a prayer someday. Yeah, the, the pastor led me in a prayer. Or on the back of it, I, I just read some prayer. Said if I read it, I would be saved. That's not what it is. Now look at your text here. Look back in, in the text of, of Galatians chapter 2. It says faith in Christ Jesus. Belief in Jesus Christ. It's in the person and in the work. It's a, it's, it's a dependence upon. It's what it is. Not an intellectual acknowledgement that yes, he did that, but it's saying... I am going to trust in this person in the work that he accomplished for me. I've given this illustration before, and you actually can find this illustration on our website. But it's a story of a uh, one of those tightrope walkers. His name was Blondine. He was a famous 19th century French tightrope walker. And this brother successfully crossed the Niagara Falls uh, a number of times. I mean, he walked across the Niagara Falls, which is 1,100 feet and 160 feet below is, is, is uh, raging waters. Well, it was on one occasion when Blondine was doing this that uh, he walked back and forth on this, over the Niagara Falls. 
And then, then as the crowd was watching, they were cheering, and they, he was saying, well, how many, how, how many believe I can do this? How many of you could believe that I could put someone in this wheelbarrow here and, and carry you across on the Niagara Falls as we do it on the tightrope walker? And everyone's like, yes, you can do it. You're the man. Go ahead. And he says, well, if you believe me, why don't you uh, get in the wheelbarrow? Everybody just kind of, yeah, you, yeah, no. Finally, uh, Blondine's uh, uh, manager, probably feeling the pressure, uh, he finally stepped up and he got in the wheelbarrow and Blondine took him, took him across. I like that picture because me, that, that gives me an illustration of what we're talking about on faith. Those people are like, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, you can walk across that with a wheelbarrow and somebody in it. But when it came to him looking at them to get in, mm-mm. I'm not trusting in you. That's what a lot of people do. They do it with their works. Instead of completely putting themselves on Christ Jesus and his person, his work. They hang on to their own works. That's not faith. See, by Paul or Peter, by Peter, Acting this way to the Gentiles, he was compromising that message. Matter of fact, Peter or Paul says at the end of, of this chapter, verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You know, you know what Peter was saying? By his actions, he was basically saying Christ's death really was in vain, it wasn't needed. He was nullifying the grace of God. Now, in verse 17, he goes on. He goes on from covering and exchanging self-righteousness to the law for Christ's righteousness through faith. And he, he begins to, I believe, head off an objection by his Judaizer opponents. It says this, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? In essence, what I believe they're saying, this is, this is debated, but what I believe they're saying is, hey, if, if, if you can just be justified by Christ and Christ alone, then that means you can just go do whatever you want. You don't have to keep the works of the law. You can just do what you want. So in essence, you're, you're saying, Paul, then, that Christ is a promoter of sin. And, and Paul says, uh-uh, may it never be. Absolutely not. In essence, he turns around. He says, actually, on the contrary, I say this. If I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In essence, what he's saying is that all that the law truly is good for, ultimately what the law does is it points out that I'm a sinner. That I can't keep this. See, the law in and of itself wasn't bad. But what the primary vehicle of the law did is it showed our need for a savior. Why do you think the law included all those sacrifices? The reason they kept those sacrifices is because they couldn't keep all the law, so they needed to go and make sacrifices to God. He's saying, in essence, if you go to the law and depends upon the law, all it shows you to be is a transgressor. Then he goes on in verse 19, he says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. What does this mean? In essence, what's the works of the law? They were never meant to save us. What they kept proving to us is that a payment needed to be made. They couldn't save me. And Paul is saying, hey, when I realized that, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I went from my, my, this effort of trying to keep the law to finding life, true life, because all the law truly brought me in the end was death. But in God, there's life. And you say, well, how did he do that? How did he die the law and how did he live to God? Well, that's verse 20. Look what it says there. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. Verse 20 is probably one of my, it's my favorite verses. I wouldn't, it'd probably be up there with one of my life verses. I always pull out several of them. But he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word crucified is a perfect tense of the verb. 
And what that means is it, it indicates something that happened in the past, but yet still influences us here in the present. And so, in essence, what he's saying here, instead of me paying for what the law said I deserved to do and to pay for, I was crucified with Christ. That is, when I put my, my faith and my trust in Christ, God no longer looks at me by myself, but he looks at me as with Christ and in Christ. I kind of explained it this way, and I probably explained it to some of you all, but without my glasses, things look pretty blurry, all right? I can't see really how beautiful my wife is right now. But when I put on these glasses, the whole picture changes, and I see how beautiful she is. And in one way, what, what happens is, is when we are without Christ, all we sees is a blurry mess in our sinfulness. But when we put our faith and trust in Christ... God the Father begins to see us in Christ, and he looks at us differently. And so everything that, that has happened in Christ, it's, it's now seen in us, that we're identified with Christ. So when Christ died on the cross, he now sees us as having died on the cross. We've been crucified with Christ. When Christ arose from the grave, he has, has life, he sees us as risen with Christ. So Paul writes here, I have been crucified with Christ. And get this, there's an exchange that happens. Not only did my death experience, did I experience death with Christ, but get this other part. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I exchanged my old way of life. I died to my old self. All my sins were, were taken care of as I was crucified with Christ. And now it's not I do whatever I want to do as the Judaizers were thinking. But it's I no longer, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. See, what Paul is addressing is, he's addressing, here's how you live the sanctified life. It's not piling the Old Testament law back upon yourself. And I'm not saying we shouldn't keep the moral law that are, are given in the Old Testament what I'm saying is we can't keep those in our own strength and power. And Christ says, guess what? I've come to live in you. Not only have you died with me, but I'm going to come and I'm going to live in me. And you have to make the choice. Is it no longer going to be you that makes the self-effort? Or are you going to come and you're going to depend upon me to live my life through you? You say, well, how does this happen? Well, it's something we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I just want to read a couple verses to you. The first one, you can write it down because I don't think it's up here, but in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, the scriptures tell us, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. That is, there's something called the baptism of the spirit, where we are baptized into Christ, and we are also Christ baptized us into his body, the church. So spiritually, we are now identified with Christ. Romans goes on to say, verse, uh, Romans 6, verse 3 says, Or do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? As you've been immersed, you're identified with his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in newness of life. So we've been identified with him in his death. We're identified with him in his resurrection. And he's going to give us a newness of life. And that is life that is meant to be lived through Christ living through us. And he does that via the work of the Holy Spirit. One of the most uh, frustrating things, and I've experienced this personally, is the attempt to try to live the Christian life in my own flesh. We have a tendency that, yes, we understand that, yes, to receive salvation, we have to do it by faith and faith alone. And then after we do that, then let's go and work as hard as we can to live this Christian life. Let me find some rules to guide me in how to live this Christian life. And I'll check it off each day if I'm, if I'm following these rules. Without raising your hand, how many of you have tried to live the Christian life like that? I have too. It doesn't work. It's exhausting. 
I cannot live the Christian life. I can't be like Christ in my own strength. I've tried it. And Elizabeth will attest, Matt, you can't be like Christ when you do it in your own strength. And what Christ is telling us here is, I don't want you to. I'm here to enable you to live the Christian life through the Holy Spirit in your life. For we've been crucified in Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Well, how do we do that? How do we live Christ's life out in our life? Well, look what the text says. The text says, In a life which I now live in the flesh, he says, live by faith in the Son of God. Just like you, by faith, you receive salvation, so too through faith do you live out the Christian life. What does that look like, Matt? What does it look like to live by faith? Well, what is faith? Well, faith is dependence upon. It's trust. So I go through life and I say, all right, God, you want me to live differently? You want me to do this? Then I'm going to trust your word that this is how I'm to live. And guess what? Also, Lord, I need you to enable me to live this way. I can remember struggling with different struggles in my life and sins in my life. And one of the verses that I had memorized and I would quote to myself was this one here. For I've been crucified in Christ and I no longer live. And I, and I was telling myself that no longer is it the laws, but ne- neither is it no longer my, I have to deal with these sins on my own. For I've been crucified in Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. And I would quote that and I would say, God, help me. Enable me to walk in a Christ-like manner. Help me to live out this Christian life. That's walking by faith. It's getting up every day and knowing, you know what? In my own self-effort, I can't live this Christian life. I can't be the witness I should be. I can't love my family as I should. If it's not you, Christ, through your Holy Spirit working in me. And it's coming to that humbleness. That's really the issue. We're prideful and we think we can do it on our own. It's coming humbly and saying, no, not only did you have to save me, but you have to enable me to live this life. And I can't promise you that you'll always feel that. You won't. But faith isn't based on feelings. It's making a choice to be dependent upon God. Well, the text goes on. It says, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. It's almost as if Paul knew that we needed some kind of motivation. It's almost as he, he needed to remind us, hey, let me tell you, let me remind you of the one who can empower you, not only to save you, but to live this Christian life. He says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Oh, how God loves us. He gave himself up for us to save us from our sins and to help us live out this life here now. The story is told of a man who lived in a small town. The man took in a boy who had become an orphan and, and didn't have any place to go. And over time, the man grew to love the boy as his own son. One day, the man's house, though, unfortunately, the man's house was engulfed. In fire. The boy was trapped in the house and the, and the man fought desperately to save him, going through the house, searching for him. And, and he actually managed to, to save the boy's life. But in the process, his hands were, were horribly burned. But he saved the boy. Sometime later, some distant relatives, just kind of out of the blue, showed up in town and they began to demand custody of the boy. The case went to trial, and the judge asked the man if he had any legal papers to prove he had adopted the boy. He replied to the judge that he had none. And the judge said to him, well, why should I give you custody of the boy? The judge, the man stood quietly, and he held out his badly scarred hands. 
And when the judge saw those hands, he ruled in the favor of the man. Now, why I tell you that story? The man, God, Jesus, stands in heaven today. And he holds out his hands. And he asks, well, why should I declare them righteous? God asks the son, why should I declare them righteous? And he holds out his hands because I loved them. And I demonstrated my love for them. And why they were yet sinners, I, I died for them. It's kind of love that Christ has for you and me. If he has that kind of love that he would go to those lengths, don't you think we could also trust him to enable us to live this life? Don't you think he'll do it? Oh, might we not seek justification in our own works, but may we seek it in faith in Christ to Christ alone. And may justification through faith lead us to live the Christian life by faith also. Amen. Dear God, we come. We praise you, God. Lord, as I bring this message, Lord, I'm reminded of my own utter unworthiness. I'm reminded of how far short I follow short of your glory, God. But yet, Lord, you love me and you made a way of salvation. You made a plan where I could be declared righteousness, righteous on the credit of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that. Lord, my prayer, first of all, is for those who are here today that may have never put their faith and trust in Christ. And Lord, I know that there are some as Lord, uh, I hear often different people who come in and out on Sundays. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is depending upon their own work to save himself, Lord, that today will be the day where they repent of that, that they turn from any kind of thinking that they can save themselves in any fashion or form, and they will wholly fall and have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who, who have come to faith in Christ, who have been justified through faith in Christ alone. But like me at times, want to fall into that trap that the Judaizers were giving. And we even try to seek to use the law to live out the Christian life here and now instead of faith and trust in Christ alone. And Lord, I pray for my brother and sister who might be struggling with that. And I pray that you'll give them understanding of your truth, of how you call them to live by faith, to trust you, to depend upon you in living out this Christian life, that they may not exhaust themselves in trying to do it in their own strength, but they'll exchange their own self-righteous tendencies for the power that's available in you, Christ. And Lord, I pray as you do that work, in their life, and as you continue to, to do that work in my life, Lord, that you will be glorified. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your love, the love that the Son had for us, that he gave himself for us, Lord. And we thank you and praise you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.